Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Curseland podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. Again, this is a holiday episode, which I try to make a little bit longer in case you're on a long trip or you have some extra time to kill. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Horse racing, the name of a given horse is considered to be almost as important as its ability to run, thanks in part to a large number of rigid rules put in place by the various governing bodies of the sport. Picking a name is an exercise in creativity as much as it is a simple way to identify a horse. From todayifoundout.com, this story is by Carl Smallwood. Why do racehorses have such weird names? You see, to race a thoroughbred in near enough any location on Earth, it must have a name that conforms to strict regulations laid out by the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities. In addition, depending on where in the world you are, there may be further stipulations a chosen name must adhere to for the horse to race in that region. First, though, let's discuss the rules laid out by the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities. For starters, a chosen name can be no longer than 18 characters long, and to make things just a little more difficult, spaces and punctuation marks count towards this limit. For this reason, many owners choose to simply forgo spaces and punctuation when picking a name for a horse, our personal favorite example of which being the horse 18 characters, a name that is, somewhat amusingly, exactly 18 characters long. Now, although 18 characters may seem like plenty, another rule handed down by the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities that makes picking a name just a tad more difficult is that no two horses currently racing can have the same name. To avoid confusion between horses, once a name is registered with the relevant horse racing authority required, similar sounding names are also banned. On top of all this, when a horse retires, its name cannot be used again for at least another 20 years, with this being extended to 35 years if the horse goes to stud, again to avoid confusion and out of respect for the owner. This rule is ignored if a given horse wins a major event, in which case its name is retired forever. Exceptions to this rule can be made if a given horse is competing in another part of the world, though generally the owner is required to add the prefix of the horse's country of origin to the end of its name to differentiate it from the other horse. Reading this, you can probably start to understand why owners choose such eclectic names, but we're not done yet. There are still a lot more rules we need to discuss. For example, the chosen name can't be, to quote, in poor taste, a polite way of saying it can't be offensive to a particular religious, political, or ethnic group, And if you've ever tried to say, well, anything online, you probably know that almost everything is offensive to some group out there. Furthermore, a name cannot be used for advertising purposes or contain a trademarked term or something like that. Understandably, a name also cannot contain any vulgarity, a rule many owners seem to take great enjoyment in trying to circumvent, a few of which we'll mention in the bonus facts later. 
Finally, you cannot name a horse after a living person without express written permission from that person. Moving on to more region-specific rules in the United States, for example, the Jockey Club requires any owner registering a horse with a name that has meanings that are not self-evident to explain what it means before it will be approved. The reasoning being to stop names that may circumvent any of the previously stated rules from slipping through the net. Curiously, the Jockey Club seems to be more lenient when it comes to allowing names that are overtly political in nature than other parts of the world, with horses like Obama's Promises and Palin Power being approved. In the UK, on the other hand, Weatherby's, the administrative arm of the British Horse Racing Authority, dictates that a name can't be more than seven syllables long, a rule that rarely comes into play given the 18-character name limit, so isn't a rule handed down in other jurisdictions. UK horse racing authorities also take special care to vet names that may have a different meaning in other cultures, a common-sense rule given the proximity of Great Britain to the melting pot of cultures that is Europe. The difficulty of naming a horse is only compounded by the fact that in addition to being unique, a name, as a rule, should be fairly memorable. Reason being that nobody's going to bet on a horse with a lame name, unless it happens to have a famous owner or heritage. This is a fact that probably explains why the Queen is happy to choose fairly boring names like Paul Mall or Sea Shanty for her racing horses. Speaking of heritage, a common trend when it comes to naming racehorses is to choose a name that is a subtle hint to the individual horse's lineage. For example, we have the horse Inside Information, the offspring of a stallion called Private Account, and a mare called Pure Profit. Another trend when it comes to naming racehorses is to simply pick a name that sounds funny or is difficult to pronounce, usually just to annoy racing commentators. An example of this is a horse bought by one of the writers of the film Airplane, David Zucker, named All Pink. If that doesn't sound at all funny, we should note that Zucker specifically instructed the jockey riding All Pink to hug the inside of the track so the commentator would have to keep saying the phrase, it's all pink on the inside. Other examples of naming shenanigans include horses named Do Re Mi Fa Sol La Ti Do, Ha Ha Ha, and simply R all of which were named, partly, to mess with commentators. To conclude, though, the reason racehorses tend to have such weird names is largely due to strict regulations handed down by the highest authorities in horse racing, which necessitates owners getting, shall we say, creative when coming up with a unique and memorable name. In fact, it's noted that around a third of all submitted horse names are rejected outright for breaking one or more rules. For this reason, many owners submit multiple names just to ensure one gets accepted, as invariably one or more of them will be breaking some rule or other. And this article also has a bonus facts section. Check this out. Despite the best efforts of the relevant authorities vetting names, countless names some would consider to be vulgar or offensive have been unwittingly accepted in the past. Examples include Date More Miners, Pussy Galore, Bodacious Tatas, Nut Zapper, and our personal favorite, G-Spot. Why? Because it was the result of a stallion called Pursuit of Love getting it on with a mare called My Discovery. As for names that have been rejected for being too offensive in the past, but we feel compelled to mention anyway, these include Chit Hot and P. Ness.
The story of the Toledo War begins in 1787 when the U.S. government enacted the Northwest Ordinance. The ordinance described the border between Ohio and Michigan as an east and west line drawn through the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan. Congress used the best map available at the time, the Mitchell map, to create this east-west line, putting most of the west shoreline of Lake Erie within Ohio's borders. This would include Maumee Bay, where the Maumee River and Lake Erie meet, giving Ohio a significant economic advantage for shipping. From MentalFloss.com The time Ohio and Michigan almost went to war for real. This story is by Rob Lammel. However, it was discovered in 1803 that the Mitchell map was incorrect. The tip of Lake Michigan was actually farther south. A straight line from the correct southern point would have cost Ohio almost all of Lake Erie. Hoping to avoid this loss, Ohio changed the description of the border so that it now ran northeast from the tip of Lake Michigan to Maumee Bay. This new description wasn't an issue until 1833 when Michigan asked for statehood. Michigan kept the old Northwest Ordinance line description but drew it from the correct tip of Lake Michigan. The overlap between Ohio and Michigan's descriptions created the Toledo Strip, a ribbon of land five to eight miles wide encompassing present-day Toledo. In an effort to make Michigan concede the strip, Ohio's governor, Robert Lucas, used his political connections to convince Congress to deny Michigan statehood. Upset by Lucas's scheme, Michigan Governor Stevens Mason enacted the Pains and Penalties Act in February 1835. This law said that anyone caught in the strip supporting the state of Ohio could be jailed for up to five years and fined $1,000, roughly $25,000 today. To enforce his act, Mason raised a militia of a thousand men and stationed them inside Toledo. In response, Governor Lucas sent 600 men. It was a fight just waiting to happen. For the next five months, a series of skirmishes, arrests, lawsuits, and general chest-thumping occurred in the Toledo Strip. But no one was killed or seriously injured until July when Michigan Sheriff Joseph Wood attempted to arrest Major Benjamin Stickney for voting in an Ohio election. Stickney and his sons, named, I kid you not, One Stickney and Two Stickney, resisted. In the melee, two stabbed Sheriff Wood with a pocket knife. Though the sheriff's wound was not life-threatening, this scuffle was enough to instigate peace talks and troops were withdrawn. Still, the political dispute raged on until December 1836 when Congress offered Michigan a compromise. Give up the Toledo Strip, but gain statehood and a large portion of the Upper Peninsula instead. Michigan had spent so much maintaining the militia's presence in the Strip that they were quickly running out of money. They weren't happy about it, but they had no choice but to accept the compromise. Even after the deal, legal battles between the states occurred periodically until 1973 when it took a Supreme Court ruling to resolve claims to the waters of Lake Erie. Now, Ohio and Michigan citizens channel their border war tensions onto the college football gridiron. In 
64 on a cold November's morn. The burning of Atlanta was a sad and a dreary one. For Sherman came a marching with a hundred thousand men. And through the smoke, through the flames, over the cannon roar. You could hear them rebels call, we ain't scared of y'all. We don't care what the Yankees say, South gonna rise again. We're tough as nails and it better turn field than a hit back with a pin. They took our beans and a fat back morning. We still got our Confederate morning. We don't care what the Yankees say. The South. In late May 1861, Jefferson Davis, the former Mississippi senator and reluctant president of the seceding Confederate States of America, moved the capital of the CSA from Montgomery, Alabama to Richmond, Virginia to boost the morale of the Confederate troops and weld Virginia to the Confederacy. Had he known that in April of 1865, he, his cabinet, and about $700,000 in gold and specie would have to evacuate Richmond to avoid capture during the waning days of the Civil War, he might have elected to remain in Montgomery. This story is from ClevelandCivilWarRoundtable.com The Search for Lost Confederate Gold A story by Hans Quincy Davis was attending church services on Sunday, April 2, 1865, when he learned that Lee's defensive line at Petersburg had been broken and the evacuation of Richmond was imminent. President Davis pleaded with Lee to form defense lines for just one more day and informed his cabinet that Richmond was to be evacuated and that they would take the Confederate treasury with them. General Lee advised Davis that he had until 8 p.m. to load the gold, valuables, and cabinet members onto two trains which would travel southward on the only line still open between Richmond and Danville, Virginia. All the Confederate officials would board the first train, while the second train would hold special cargo. Navy Captain William H. Parker was placed in charge of the second train, and, knowing that the special cargo was comprised of gold ingots, gold double-eagle coins, silver coins, silver bricks, and Mexican silver dollars, he gathered the only available personnel to provide a military guard. This guard consisted of mostly young Navy midshipmen from a training ship on the James River, and some of them were only 12 years old. The two trains left Richmond at midnight, and when the tracks ended at Danville, Davis and his staff began to travel south on horseback. Captain Parker and the treasure, now moved to wagons, were directed to the old U.S. Mint at Charlotte, North Carolina, which was considered the safest storage place. Unfortunately, Parker found the U.S. Cavalry already in the immediate area and made alternate arrangements. The treasure was placed into all kinds of containers that once had been used for sugar, coffee, flour, and ammunition. Moving to the southwest, Parker and the wagons zigzagged across the South Carolina-Georgia state line several times to evade capture. Eventually, the responsibility for the treasure was passed on to the Secretary of War, John C. Breckinridge, who then placed Brigadier General Basil Duke in charge. With slightly less than a thousand men in his command, Duke transferred all the treasure into six wagons and began his journey south, with eight of his veterans on each wagon as guards and the rest of his command, along with the midshipmen, as escorts. In Washington, Georgia, Jefferson Davis and his cabinet met for the final time, where Davis signed his last official order, making Micaja Clark the acting treasurer of the Confederacy. 
It was in Washington that the bulk of the treasure was captured, along with Jefferson Davis and his staff. Some of the treasure had been retained by Brigadier General Duke and his men, as each man under his command received as payment the sum of $26.25, which amounted to a total of about $26,250. The balance of the captured treasure was assembled and loaded into wagons for transport to Washington, D.C. However, somewhere in Wilkes County, Virginia, the wagon train was bushwhacked. The bushwhackers were stragglers from both the Federal and Confederate armies who had heard of the treasure and the handouts being given to soldiers. Residents of Wilkes County who witnessed the event said that the bushwhackers waded knee-deep in gold and silver coinage before loading it in all kinds of bags and sacks and riding away. It was said that many riders were so overloaded that they later discarded or hid large quantities of the coins all over Wilkes County. The belief that Confederate gold is buried in Wilkes County has persisted since the end of the war. However, despite searches conducted throughout the years, nothing of value has ever been found there. This rumor of buried treasure in Wilkes County nevertheless spawned a legend involving a family of local repute, the Mumfords, and the location of the lost Confederate gold. This legend was first advanced by Martha Mizell Puckett, a former school teacher and Brantley County native, who spun her tale of Confederate gold in her book, Snow White Sands. Her book alleged that New York native and Confederate sympathizer Sylvester Mumford was present at the Confederacy's final cabinet meeting in Washington, Georgia, and claimed that Jefferson Davis divided the gold among those present and instructed them to use the money as they felt best. Another account maintains Jefferson Davis entrusted the entire Confederate treasury into the care of Sylvester Mumford. A very prosperous merchant before the war, Mumford had established a cotton plantation near Waynesville. However, his business fortunes suffered great losses throughout the course of the war. It was said that after taking possession of the gold, Mumford transported some of the Confederate treasury southeast to North Florida and the Atlantic coast, where he boarded a British steamer bound for England. Puckett was rather vague about what Mumford did with the gold he allegedly transported to England, except to claim that he ordered enough seed corn from South America by way of Great Britain to replant the whole state of Georgia. The rest of the gold found its way into the hands of his daughter, Gordoner Gertrude Mumford Parkhurst in New York, where she lived and invested it well. Puckett claimed that when Miss Gertrude decided that the remainder of the Confederate gold should be returned to the people to whom it belonged, her personal lawyer, Judge J.P. Highsmith, suggested that an educational trust be established for the descendants of the Confederate soldiers. As heir to the Mumford estate, Miss Gertrude allegedly made provisions to return the balance of the Confederate treasure to southern hands after her death. In fact, when she died in 1946 at age 99 in Washington, D.C., she bequeathed almost $600,000 to the children of Brantley County through an endowment and two scholarship funds. Initially, with one-third of her estate, the will established the Sylvester Mumford Memorial Endowment at the Thornwell Orphanage in Clinton, South Carolina, which was founded in 1875 and is now known as the Thornwell Home and School for Children. The remainder of her estate was divided between two scholarship funds, 
The first was given to the Presbyterian Church, headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, in trust for maintenance and education of white orphan girls of Brantley County. By 1960, this scholarship fund was creating more income from its principal investment than there were recipients for the scholarships. The church petitioned the court to expand the scope of the scholarships by including residents of counties which immediately surrounded Brantley and by defining an orphan as a child who had lost at least one parent. Due to the moral and legal concerns about restricting the fund to white orphan girls, the church then petitioned the court to open the scholarship to all ethnic groups. In 2002, the church awarded $32,000 to qualified women from southeast Georgia, and in October 2003, there were 15 women attending colleges or technical schools who were funded by the scholarship program. A second scholarship, known as the Sylvester Mumford Memorial Fund, was to be awarded to students from Brantley County who attended Georgia College, then known as Georgia State College for Women. In recent years, the number of students receiving tuition assistance has fluctuated between 10 and 12. Given this claim that the source of these scholarships was in fact a portion of the lost Confederate treasury, researchers throughout the years sought to confirm the veracity of the Mumford legend. However, their work created great doubt that any lost Confederate gold ever existed in the first place. Of particular note, Wayne J. Lewis researched the connection between the Confederate gold and the Mumford estate due to his personal interest in the legend. In April 1953, he and his three brothers were the first children from Brantley County to derive benefit from the Mumford funds at the Thornwell Orphanage in Clinton, South Carolina. After their father died from a heart attack in 1951 at age 47. Lewis graduated from Thornwell High School in 1958 and then from Clemson University in 1962 before serving on active duty in Germany and Vietnam with the U.S. Army. He resigned his commission as a captain after almost six years and he retired from the U.S. Postal Service in 2000 and still has family and friends in Brantley County. Appreciative of the home the Mumfords provided and his opportunity for a college education, he set out to discover the facts behind the Confederate gold. He researched the archives of the Thornwell Orphanage and found no reference to the Confederacy or gold in any of the handwritten letters from Mrs. Parkhurst. He also interviewed local historians and librarians in Washington, Georgia, none of whom had heard of the gold's connection to Brantley County. Moreover, he was unable to find any mention of the name Mumford in any record of the period. After exhaustive research, Lewis concluded that gold from the Richmond banks and the Confederate treasury had in fact been evacuated from Richmond and shipped south to prevent it from falling into the hands of Union forces. However, although the banks and the Confederacy had shipped their gold on the same train, each had its own security forces and the gold was never commingled. Although Jefferson Davis's family was on the train with the gold shipments, Lewis wrote that Jefferson Davis was not. The treasurer of the Confederacy was on board and made numerous well-documented disbursements along the way to meet military payrolls. Arriving in Washington, Georgia, Lewis reported that the Confederate treasury had dwindled down to about $43,000 in cash. The funds were then stored there in a vault at a local bank and within days after the war ended, the Richmond banks had their funds returned to Richmond on five wagons. However, this wagon train was robbed on the first night that it stopped to make camp, 
and the robbers improvised ways to carry the loot, stuffed in their shirts, pants, boots, and whatever else would hold their plunder. Unfortunately for them, their booty leaked and made it easy for a posse to follow. All but about $70,000 was recovered and transferred to Augusta, Georgia, where ownership of the funds was tied up in court until 1893. The courts eventually agreed with the federal government, who claimed the funds because the Richmond banks had aided a rebellion by making loans to the Confederacy. Lewis concluded that the Brantley County Confederate gold legend was probably fabricated from a combination of the legend told in Snow White Sands and the actual gold shipments after the war. Indeed, no one who was an eyewitness to the events ever documented that the gold was actually lost. Martha Mizell Puckett, author of Snow White Sands, had failed to include footnotes, references, or even a simple bibliography to support the presence of gold in Brantley County. In conclusion, historical research has determined only $70,000 of the gold belonging to the banks in Richmond is missing, but not lost, as it was accounted for in the robbery during its shipment back to Richmond. What remained of the Confederate treasury, in the form of gold and other valuable coins, was disbursed as payroll to Confederate troops during its transport south. By the end of the war, nothing remained in the coffers of the Confederate treasury except for its incalculable amount of debt. In August 1887, the Richmond Climax in Madison County ran a ghost story vouched for by numerous responsible persons. In 1884, John Ballinger of Big Hill accidentally shot his little daughter. She lived just long enough to run from the house and into the yard where she collapsed on a long plank of wood and died. In 1885, a man named McSweeney purchased the piece of timber despite its tragic history and made it into a bee gum, yesteryear's name for a wooden beehive. This is another story from the Kentucky Book of the Dead, The Haunted Bee Gum and the Boisterous Coffin. McSweeney soon noticed a problem with his pride and joy. Bees refused to stay in it, which rather defeated its purpose. He noticed that a knocking sound emanated from the gum, as if some person were rapping on a door, only there was but one knock at a time, and the intervals were some minutes. The puzzled farmer assumed that the sporadic noise was scaring away the bees. A bee gum is hollow, it will be remembered, so there should be nothing inside to produce such unnerving sound effects. After being mystified by the gum for some time, McSweeney put it up for sale. The next owner was Reuben Cox who lived near Mallory Springs. Neither he nor two other men, a Mr. Scuttle and Cy Baker, could induce bees to stay in the gum. Cox claimed that the knocking sound was occasionally so loud that he could hear it across the road. He also noticed that it was more frequent during certain seasons and that it occurred most often at night. The Climax article ends with Cox offering to give up his farm if the bee gum failed to behave exactly as advertised there is no record of anyone taking him up on his wager. Another story featuring unexplained knockings unfolded in Muldra, Meade County. In 1886, Zach Gill got into an argument with a widow named McCarty concerning the ownership of a cow. Gill ended the debate with a shotgun repost. 
The noted doctor, Henry Pusey, testified at the trial that the murderer was insane, so instead of going to jail, Gill ended up in the asylum at Lakeland. He died there around 1888. His body was taken home for burial in a coffin provided by the family, while Gill's clothes and meager worldly possessions were packed away in a rough wooden coffin provided by the state. Zach Gill's widow refused to give these items to Zach's brother, Tom. Instead, she kept the coffin in her attic. When the widow died in 1897, Tom Gill immediately took possession of the coffin and gave away the bits and pieces of his brother's estate inside it, despite the protests of Zach Gill's son, who thought he should have claim to all the items. Having nowhere better to place the coffin, Tom put it on the porch, where it invited comment from passersby. All was pleasantly mundane until July 1897. Tom Gill was frequently awakened by the sound of someone knocking on the door, which happened to be located very near the coffin. Whenever he opened the door, no one would be there. Thinking it to be a prank, he stood by the door in a state of readiness, prepared to fling it open next time he heard the knock. When that occasion came, he opened the door immediately, but to his amazement, no one was there. Nor did any pranksters have sufficient time to flee or hide. Tom was still scratching his head over that one when he realized that he could hear a tapping noise coming from inside the coffin. By lantern light, he opened the lid and examined the few items that remained within. Some of Zach Gill's clothes, but he found nothing that could have caused the sound. The instant he closed the lid, the rapping recommenced. After that incident, the coffin's sound effects came daily and nightly. Gill was visited by hordes of people who wanted to hear the knocking. Muldraw was a summer resort for wealthy city dwellers, and when word about the magic coffin got out, 50 boarders at the Twin Caves Hotel held nightly parties on Gill's porch. Nothing was ever found inside the coffin to account for the rapping sounds. A contemporary news article states, The ignorance say that it is the spirit of old Zach Gill trying to tell to whom the clothes should be given. Of course, the enlightened visitors and the intelligent inhabitants of Muldra do not believe a spirit is responsible for the sounds, but they admit that they are unable to discover just what does cause them. In 1915, a desperate city of San Diego hired Charles Hatfield, a man who claimed he could make it rain, to end a devastating drought. I do not make rain, Hatfield insisted. That would be an absurd claim. I simply attract clouds, and they do the rest. From allthatsinteresting.com, a story by Gina DeMuro. San Diego hired a rainmaker in 1915 to end a drought, but what they got was a deadly flood. Indeed, clouds were attracted to Hatfield, perhaps too much so. Instead of bringing rain, Hatfield conjured epic floods and a death toll. Before summoning the floods, Hatfield was but a humble sewing machine salesman in Kansas but his wholesome, earnest Quaker background would help him to garner trusting clients in his rainmaking business. In his spare time, Hatfield studied pluviculture and mixed his own methods for rain production. By 1902, he had created a mixture of 23 chemicals in evaporating tanks, which he claimed attracted rain. Hatfield thus dubbed himself a moisture accelerator. 
The term rainmaker may sound as though it came straight from the ancient world, and in the 20th century, many salesmen like Hatfield based their trade on a sort of pseudoscience, not unlike the magic of old spells. Instead of appealing to the gods with secret prayers and special rituals, though, Hatfield believed he could instigate rainfall by evaporating mixtures of dynamite, nitroglycerin, and other ingredients. He took the exact formula with him to his grave, into the air, from towers. Hatfield's process seemed to be an early form of cloud seeding, or the process of sending chemicals into the air that will react with elements in the cloud to produce particles of precipitation. Although this is certainly a more scientific-sounding process than rainmaking, experts today still debate the effectiveness of cloud seeding. Hatfield's main selling point was that he wouldn't charge people until he had produced results. When asked by one reporter if he was really going to make it rain, he replied, I certainly will, or it won't cost the people a cent. In 1904, the Quaker from Kansas began by charging clients, mostly small farmers, $50 for his services. But word of his skills soon spread. After a series of successful rainfalls, and a year later, he had upped his price to $1,000 per inch of rain. San Diego had long had problems with water supply. Since the city has little in the way of natural water sources, it relies heavily on reservoirs, which run dry during an extreme drought. This is exactly what had happened in late 1915, after weeks without rain, and consequently brought the desperate San Diego City Council to turn to Charles Hatfield, despite the protests of one council member who ruled the idea nothing but foolishness. The 40-year-old rainmaker made a deal with the city in which he would either fill the marina reservoir or induce between 30 and 50 centimeters of rain at the cost of $10,000 to be paid after the showers started, of course. The council amazingly agreed to the proposal, albeit verbally only, and Hatfield, together with his younger brother, constructed a tower where he could conduct his secret work. In early January 1916, it began to rain over San Diego after weeks of drought. The wife of the local dam keeper recalled how on a visit to Hatfield's tower during the early days of the drizzle, she declared, It's sure raining now, to which Hatfield replied, You haven't seen anything yet. Wait two weeks and it'll really rain. And really rain it did. At first, San Diegans rejoiced in Charles Hatfield's fulfillment of his promise, with one newspaper joyfully proclaiming, Rainmaker Hatfield induces clouds to open. It seemed their prayers had been answered. But when the rains continued for a week, people grew ready for a break. A semi-serious poem beseeched Hatfield to stop. From Saugus down to San Diego's Bay, they bless you for the rains of yesterday. But Mr. Hatfield, listen now, make us this vow. Oh, please, kind sir, don't let it rain on Monday. Joy turned into apprehension and then dismay as the rain turned to storms and water overflowed the reservoirs. By January 27th, the floods had destroyed everything in their path. When the Hatfield flood ended, an estimated 30 inches of rain had fallen and around 20 people were killed. Rather than stick around to collect his fee and fearful of being lynched by angry farmers, Hatfield decided to skip town. The rainmaker did eventually return to try and collect his $10,000, although the infuriated city council sent him packing. When Hatfield decided to sue, one councilman cleverly propositioned that they would pay the rainmaker his money, 
but on the condition that he also accept responsibility for creating the floods and pay the city for the damage it caused. Charles Hatfield decided it would be best to cut his losses and left San Diego behind without his money. Although Charles Hatfield's rainmaking career ended with the Great Depression, which forced him to go back to selling sewing machines, his legend endured in the form of pop culture, books, and songs, and experts still debate his responsibility in the 1916 flood. Weathermen during Hatfield's time observed that the rainmaker tended to see to those locations where rain was in the forecast. Hatfield also boasted that he had made it rain more than 500 times, which made most experts wary of his abilities. Hatfield could very well have simply been a great fraud who was even better at forecasting the weather. Almost everyone in the fields of space and aeronautical engineering are aware of the names of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Robert Goddard, and Werner von Braun. These men undoubtedly laid the groundwork in rocket development, which allowed mankind to leave the cradle of the Earth and take our first small steps into the cosmos. From SpaceSafetyMagazine.com, this story is entitled Jack Parsons, Occultism, Magic, and the Birth of NASA JPL by Philip Keane. But very few people are aware of Marvel Whiteside Parsons, a.k.a. Jack Parsons, co-founder of Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Parsons made major contributions to rocket development, particularly in the area of solid fuel propellant. The solid motors on the space shuttle and the motors in the Minuteman missile were based on the solid propellant technology that he invented. He was a founding member of Aerojet Corporation, and he even has a crater on the dark side of the moon named after him. So why isn't he as celebrated as the other founding fathers of spaceflight? And what was that about the occult? Parsons was born in Pasadena in 1914, to a wealthy but troubled family. His father, Marvel Sr., walked out when his son was young, after having an affair with another woman, leaving young Marvel Jr. in charge of his doting mother, Ruth. His mother promptly filed for divorce and began referring to her son as John, which is the name he is referred to by the scientific community who worked with him later in life. As he grew older, other family members and close friends would refer to him as Jack, as would his occult buddies in later years. In eighth grade, Parsons met another boy named Edward Foreman, and the two became friends. Both were fans of Jules Verne and the new Amazing Stories science fiction magazine. Undoubtedly, these works of fiction shaped the minds of Parsons and Foreman, as soon they were experimenting with fireworks in Parsons' back garden. This need for experimentation grew, and in 1928, the pair began constructing their own solid-fueled rockets. Neighbors at the time had reported that the Parsons' backyard was full of scorched craters from some of the less successful rocket trials. According to Foreman, it was at this time that Parsons had begun experimenting with glue as a binding agent for the loose powder in their DIY rockets. In 1932, while still in school, Parsons began working for the Hercules Powder Company. In 1933, he graduated from high school and began studying at Pasadena Junior College, along with Foreman. 
During this time, the pair entered into written correspondence with Robert Goddard, Herman Oberth, and Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, but later commented that due to the state of the art at the time, nothing of any real value could be gleaned from the correspondences, so the letter writing ceased. Both Parsons and Foreman failed to graduate from college. Instead, both found employment with Halifax Explosives, a company based in the Mojave Desert. In 1935, Parsons married his high school sweetheart, Helen Northrop. The marriage lasted a few years, but ended when Parsons began an affair with Helen's half-sister. But more on that later. One day, in 1937, Parsons and Foreman attended a lecture on rocketry at Caltech, where they became acquainted with student Frank Molina. Molina was a theorist and mathematician studying mechanical engineering at the time. The three men began making inquiries around the Caltech campus with regards to establishing a rocket development program, but were constantly refused opportunities as rocketry was still largely seen as science fiction at that time. However, legendary aerodynamicist Theodore von Karman was working at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories of the California Institute of Technology, Gausset, and listened to the plans of the trio. He heard of their plans for sending liquid and solid-fueled rockets high into the atmosphere and finally approved their proposal in the form of Molina's proposal for a Ph.D. in rocket design. This opened the doors to the academic world and made available the full resources of Caltech and Gausset for Molina and his new pals. It didn't take long for the group to run into trouble on campus. A misfired rocket forced the group to move outside of the aeronautics laboratory and work on a concrete platform away from the main building. A second accident, an explosion that caused a piece of steel to become impacted into a wall, saw von Karman move the group out into the desert to avoid further mishap and potential fatalities. At this point, the group became known to other students as the Suicide Club and began their experiments in the Arroyo Seco area, close to the ironically named Devil's Gate Dam at the edge of Pasadena. JPL is now located on that exact site. Then, in 1938, the United States Army offered two research projects, one for windshield de-icing on aircraft and another for rocket engines to launch small aircraft. MIT had the first pick, and feeling that the research into rocketry was a Buck Rogers project, left rocket development to the members of the Suicide Club. Early tests of the rocket engines relied upon powdered fuel, but due to the contents of the canisters settling, the rockets were unstable. Parsons, who had already developed a passion for mythology, was allegedly watching a roofer applying hot asphalt to the top of a building and was reminded of the Greek fire incendiary weapon used by the ancient Byzantine Empire. Thinking back to his earlier experiments using binding agents, Parsons decided to mix some of this hot tar-like substance with potassium percolate powder. After several experiments, it was demonstrated that this binding agent proved a clean and even burn and could allow the canisters to be stored safely without the contents settling. The military saw the potential for this JADO canister, short for jet-assisted takeoff, and injected a small amount of money into the group for further development. The solid rocket fuel would become the basis for the Minuteman missile, the Titan rocket, and the space shuttle solid rocket booster, and would ultimately help push mankind into the solar system, but not before some staring into the abyss from Parsons. 
1939, Parsons became acquainted with the works of English occultist Alastair Crowley, who referred to himself as the Great Beast 666 and was referred to by the English media as the wickedest man in the world. Crowley was the founder of the Thelemic religion, whose practitioners lived by the motto, Do what thou wilt. He had previously enjoyed some success as a mountaineer, having scaled K2 and Kanchenjunga, the second and third highest mountains in the world, respectively. During the Kanchenjunga expedition in 1905, Crowley's fellow mountaineers fell victim to an avalanche. They called to Crowley for help, and rather than assist his dying comrades, he did what any good Englishman would do. He put his feet up, made a cup of tea. He then sat and watched them die on the mountain, later claiming that he had no sympathy for his chums. Afterwards, in 1910, hooked on mysticism and debauchery, Crowley was admitted to another secret society, this time into a group known as the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. Crowley quickly rose through the ranks of the OTO and became the leader of the English-speaking fraternities. Although the OTO was originally modeled on principles of Freemasonry, with Crowley at the helm, it quickly reinvented itself with the beliefs of the Thelemic religion at its core, along with its ideas of free love, debauchery, and sex magic. Fast forward back to 1939. Parsons and his wife Helen joined the OTO's Pasadena chapter, known as the Agape Lodge, which was led by Wilfred Smith. He began correspondence with Crowley and quickly became Crowley's American representative for the OTO. Parsons pursued his occult interest and scientific interests with equal intensity. He purchased a large house on South Orange Grove Avenue, Pasadena, and created a commune, inviting actors, actresses, poets, and writers, including sci-fi master Robert Heinlein and ultimately sci-fi miner L. Ron Hubbard, to participate in his wild parties. He nicknamed the house the Parsonage. The police were frequent visitors to the Parsonage, receiving reports of naked pregnant women dancing through fire in the garden, loud music, and consumption of illegal substances. Parsons always greeted them at the door and assured the officers that he was a respectable Caltech scientist and therefore they had no cause for alarm, so they duly left him and his entourage in peace. At work, Parsons was excelling in his rocket developments and began blending his newfound occultism with his work practices by dancing and chanting Crowley's hymn to Pan before the launch of every test rocket. Nobody batted an eyelid at the time, and Von Karman, who had just arranged government funding for the Gausset rocket project, regarded him as a delightful screwball. By 1941, the Suicide Club had demonstrated the functionality of the Jado canister to the U.S. military by strapping one of the boosters to a small aircraft and igniting it. The resulting thrust generated from the rocket allowed the aircraft to take off in half the distance usually required. The military were impressed and funding for the group went through the roof. The U.S. Air Force placed a large order and in 1942, the Aerojet Engineering Corporation was founded to meet the demands of production. By 1943, seeing the true value of the Gausset rocket project, the military took over operations and changed the name to Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Despite the fact that they were not researching jet engines, the concept of rockets still contained a certain stigma, so the alternative name was selected and remains to this day. 
Whilst under military control, JPL developed several weapon deployment systems based on the liquid and solid fuel technology devised by Parsons and his group, one of which was the WAC Corporal Sounding Rocket. Once World War II had ended, the military attached one of these to the top of a V-2 rocket and achieved an altitude of more than 70 kilometers, becoming the first American rocket to ever exit the Earth's atmosphere. During the course of the war, the powers that be became worried about Jack's reputation as a hedonist and convinced him to sell his shares of Aerojet. Parsons took the payoff and used the money to devote his time to the fulfillment of his spiritual life, which largely involved more parties, sex, and other debauchery. And also, before the war was over, Parsons had begun an affair with Sarah Betty Northrup, the half-sister of wife Helen. Helen decided to repay the favor by running off with OTO head Wilfred Smith. Now, without the interference of Smith, Parsons became full head of the Pasadena OTO and began what can be described as an open relationship with Sarah Northrup. In August 1945, Parsons was introduced to a former Navy employee and sometime Pulp Fiction writer by the name of Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. Parsons was taken in by Hubbard's charisma and saw him as an equal in his magic circle. Writing to Crowley, Parsons said of Hubbard, I deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. On that basis, Hubbard was invited to stay at the Parsonage and was soon initiated into the secrets of the OTO. Crowley was not impressed. The wickedest man in the world saw L. Ron Hubbard as a charlatan and fraudster. Although Crowley was clearly a warped individual, he certainly was no fool, and history has largely confirmed that Hubbard was indeed one of the greatest fraudsters of the last century. Unfortunately for Parsons, he did not believe Crowley and invited Hubbard into his life as his magic partner. Part of the Thelemic belief system involved goddess worship, and one goddess in particular named Babylon also known as the Scarlet Woman. Crowley and Parsons believed that it was possible to summon the elemental spirit of Babylon into a human form via the use of sex magic. Crowley referred to this elemental offspring as a moonchild. From January to March 1946, Parsons began a series of magical rituals with the aid of Hubbard known as the Babylon Working. As soon as the first set of rituals had been complete, Parsons encountered a woman by the name of Marjorie Cameron. Marjorie was something of a free spirit and had moved to Pasadena after receiving an honorable discharge from the Navy. Parsons immediately became infatuated with her and her scarlet red hair and saw her arrival as a sign of a successful ritual. In short, Parsons believed that he had summoned Babylon, the Scarlet Woman. Having blown most of his aerojet savings on partying and good times, Parsons suddenly found himself short of money. Luckily, his friend Hubbard had a brilliant money-making scheme. Clearly not his most famous scam, but I digress, which he was prepared to share with Jack. The scheme involved buying boats and selling them at a profit. Hubbard had claimed that he was a master seaman due to his extensive naval experience. All Jack had to do was give $20,000 to Hubbard and wait while Hubbard collected a boat from Florida. Parsons, being the trusting person that he was, duly handed over his money, and Hubbard ran off to Mexico with Jack's wife, Sarah, and the pile of Jack's cash. 
Soon afterwards, Hubbard ceased communications with Parsons, and it didn't take long for Parsons to realize that he had been duped. According to Parsons, he then cast a spell, evoking a thunderstorm which engulfed Hubbard and Sarah's boat, forcing them to land where the law was waiting for them. After a fairly mundane legal battle, Parsons recouped his money but lost his wife and the boat. He eventually married his scarlet woman, Cameron. In the following years, Parsons engaged in small jobs repairing washing machines and designing pyrotechnics for Hollywood movies until he secured a contract as a chemical researcher for Hughes Aerospace. The newfound position of authority was not to last, however, and in 1950, the FBI began investigating Parsons for theft of documents from Hughes. Investigations revealed that Parsons had planned to exchange the rocket plans with the newly founded Israeli government in exchange for admission into Israel. He planned to submit the documents with an employment application through American Technion Society for Employment in the country of Israel, read the original FBI report. The U.S. Air Force advised the FBI that the USAF had been monitoring Parsons and his relationship with Crowley and had observed that a religious cult believed to advocate sexual perversion was organized at the subject's home at 1003 South Orange Grove Avenue, Pasadena, California, which has been reported subversive. Parsons lost all privileges with regards to security clearance. Now, largely penniless thanks to Hubbard and with his security clearance revoked, Parsons turned back to Hollywood pyrotechnics, and this is where the life story of Jack Parsons ends. In 1950, Hubbard released the first edition of Dianetics and introduced the first seeds of the money-spinning UFO cult of Scientology to the world. The symbolism of the OTO is clear to see for all in this new religion. Parsons died in a mysterious explosion in 1952, aged just 37. He was mixing chemicals in his workshop when two loud explosions were reported. He survived for some time, dying of his injuries hours later. Various theories have surrounded his death, ranging from assassination and industrial espionage to some sort of magical experiment gone wrong. It is most likely that Parsons just got careless and mixed a little too much of one powder into another solution. The very same day, upon hearing of the death of her son, Parsons' mother, Ruth, took her own life with a deliberate overdose of Nimbutal. Upon searching the Parsons' residence, police investigator Donald Harding and George Santmeyer, the latter a close friend of Parsons, discovered a box which contained a film showing Parsons and his mother Ruth having sex. Was this the final nail in the coffin of Parsons' historical reputation? In any case, the works of Parsons were systematically expunged from the academic papers stored at Caltech. At first, he became a footnote in the technical papers, and as time progressed, the footnotes disappeared also. One thing is for sure. There is sometimes a fine line between insanity and genius, and Parsons and his crew walked that line daily. The conservative academic community at the time may have been quick to disassociate themselves from him, but even Werner von Braun referred to Parsons as the true father of the American space race. And who are we to argue with von Braun? That concludes this episode of the Curse Land Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. 
As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.